that. I do want to, before we get started, uh, send a special thanks to our Wizard of Logistics, our uh, amazing program assistant, Sarah Nuxall, for taking care of details I can't even imagine, and uh, technical services and media. Um, they're going to make sure everything works for us. My name is Karen Eifler, and together with Father Charlie Gordon, we are the co-directors of the Garaventa Center for Catholic Intellectual Life in American Culture. And you know you're at an academic event when there is an introduction to the introduction. So here goes. The Garaventa Center, your hosts for this evening, celebrate and deploys the fruits of faith, reason, and imagination that constitute the Catholic intellectual tradition. We are delighted to kick off a new academic year with this signature lecture, UP's homecoming lecture, in a way. When this series namesake, Father John Zom of the Congregation of Holy Cross, wanted his secular peers to read something of his before they found out that he was a priest, as well as a scientist, he wrote it using the pen name H.J. Mozans. Then, over a hundred years ago, as today, faith and reason were often seen as competing rather than complementary paths to knowledge. Father Zom found that writing under another name offered a great way for him to expand his audience and to sneak in truths that he wanted those of his era to read, to know, and to remember. To remember the great women of history who contributed to physics and chemistry and biology. And to remember that holy revelation adds to the robust fruits of reason in the ongoing work of thinking through the difficult problems of his day. Well, we continue that worthy work today at the University of Portland, and these are indeed heady days on the bluff. New buildings, energetic and brilliant students, talented, dedicated faculty and staff. Our president, Father Mark L. Porman, who we are delighted to have in the audience today. You may stand and wave if that's what my notes say. Father Mark is entering his fourth year in the office of president, and his own apparently nonstop energy has, has been catalytic in helping to bring all of this about and in providing us with an ambitious blueprint for the next few years. At his right hand, overseeing the entire academic division of the university, is our provost, Dr. Tom Green. Dr. Green is the quintessential Renaissance man, possessing a remarkable intellect that combines with a sparkling imagination and a huge heart to produce a beloved teacher and a leader who brings out the best in the people around him. As he is the University of Portland's chief academic officer, we've invited him to provide the formal introduction of tonight's Zom lecturer. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Tom Green to the podium. Thank you, Dr. Eifler, and good evening. It's always a challenge to sift through the resume of a highly accomplished and equally unassuming individual and decide what an audience should know as you settle in for a lecture. You want everyone to know that great things are in store, but you don't want the introduction to be longer than the lecture. <laughs> this is my task this evening as I introduce Sister Ilya Delia 
author of shelves of riveting, honored books and articles as the 16th Zom lecturer. I find tonight the poet Mary Oliver helpful here with the challenge she issued to all thoughtful people. She says our job is threefold. Pay attention, be astonished, tell about it. Sister Delio has embodied this threefold challenge her entire life. As a child, she dreamt of becoming a scientist and a winning the Nobel Prize. That led her to an undergraduate and master's degree in biology and a doctorate in pharmacology from Rutgers University Medical School with a specialization in spinal cord physiology. On the eve of embarking on a postdoctoral fellowship at John Hopkins University to study Lou Gehrig's disease, Sister Delio had a life-changing encounter with Thomas Merton's spiritual masterpiece, the seven-story mountain that led her into religious life and eventually another doctorate in historical theology. As we'll see this evening, these two doctorates are not in opposition to one another. Sister Delia's robust theological and scientific imaginations link arms to tackle a world that seems prone to fragmentation and intellectual silos. She would say her message is pretty straightforward. We are loved into being by a divine heart bursting with love. Our task is to pay attention, to discover, to think, to put the fragments together, and to be artisans of the world ahead, and of course, tell about it. To a long and impressive list of places, Sister Ilya has shared the fruits of her capacious imagination and restless curiosity we are pleased tonight to add the University of Portland. Please join me in welcoming our 2016 ZOM lecturer, Sister Ilya Delio, who will engage us in reflecting on cosmology, Catholicity, and consciousness, while why wholeness matters. Sister. Thank you very much for that very kind introduction. Um, it's always startling to hear my own biography. Uh, and it's wonderful to be here at the University of Portland. It's a very beautiful campus, and so it's a privilege to share with you this evening uh, my own journey and searchings to bring science and religion into a more unified focus for a world that is seeking, I would say, a new wholeness. To begin with, I'd like to call attention to the encyclical by Pope Francis issued last year on called La Dauto Si. Uh, in this encyclical, uh, Pope Francis, the, the subtitle gives it away, is very concerned with our common home, care for our common home. And it makes me question, you know, is this our common home and is it even a home for us? Uh, Pope Francis does ask us to pay attention to the realities in our midst. Uh, we have within us um, the stripping of natural resources, the rise in global warming that continues to rise. Uh, we have the species depletion that continues, the, um, the migration of species from areas such as polar cap regions that are now melting. 
And it is amazing because we have known about these problems now for several decades. And Pope Francis's encyclical comes now almost 40 years after Rachel Spring wrote her work called Silent Spring in 1960s. So we are moving, in a sense, as scientists tell us today, from a Holocene era, a geological era of uh, geological shifts, to what is now called an Anthropocene era. In other words, our ecological destruction is of such nature that it's actually causing profound imprints on the geological structure of the Earth itself. These are irreconcilable and irreversible um, shifts. And, of course, the poor are being displaced disproportionately. So it does impel us to ask, you know, is this our home? Is this the place that is truly where we find our beingness, our at-oneness? Now, I think what is so amazing, there's a lot of amazing things about Pope Francis' encyclical, but I think he is calling us to a renewed Catholicity. And I'd like to just take some time this evening to explore, I think, the underpinnings of this Catholicity. Um, By Catholicity, I do not mean the Catholic Church, per se. Uh, In fact, Catholicity was not even coined by Catholics. It's a word that is originally found among the Greeks. And the Greeks coined the term as we begin to shift, as they began to shift from a two-tiered cosmos from the ancient Egyptians and Mesopotamians to a three-dimensional cosmos of space, width, and depth. And it was that 3D cosmos that caused the person to stand apart from the cosmos and to observe it. So the word Catholicity was coined, it's from the Greek, meaning kataholos, according to the whole. And therefore, Catholicity was, in a sense, having a consciousness of the whole. So that, you know, uh, someone like Plato, uh, who was not Catholic, but in a sense, his, just in case you weren't sure, uh, his sense of the world was a kind of Catholicity, a consciousness of the whole, where the human life was meant to be an imitation of the cosmos, the whole order, the stars, the planets. So that for Plato, the wise person would know the cosmos, and in knowing the cosmos, would in a sense mirror the wisdom of the cosmos. So for the ancients, the outer world, the celestial spheres governed the human spheres so that the individual soul would imitate, in a sense, the movement of the world soul. And Plato, in a sense, had this idea that nature has made us upright so that we can contemplate the stars. So a beautiful symmetry and harmony between the cosmos, the outer world, and the human world. So Catholicity, as the Greeks um, coined it, was really meant to have a consciousness of standing in relation to the heavens and the stars, in a sense, attentive to how nature moves, in a sense, in its own rhythm and then guides the movement of human life. It is not, therefore, um, unlikely that when this little motley crew of early Christians came along, they would adopt the language Catholic to describe this kind of new order now with, um, with Christ as center. Catholicity was an appropriate term for the early church because, in other words, Christianity uh, had a new consciousness of the whole now with God as center. 
So the idea of Christ as Pantocrator, Christ as Lord of the universe was, now here's the whole cosmos, but God is at the center of this cosmos. So we can really speak of a deep integration or link between Catholicity and cosmology. Even someone like Thomas Aquinas, um, in a sense, his understanding of God and creation, everything emanating from God, everything existing in relation to God and returning to God was a consciousness of the whole. God at the heart of this whole, and the human person is at, at the one, in a sense, giving glory to God. Now, here's a little bit of our story and, you know, uh, why it's a good and bad story. <clears throat> Although uh, this picture here on the, your left is an ancient view of the um, Hebraic cosmos, it is very similar to the ancient Ptolemaic cosmos. You can see that it's nice and perfectly concentric. The Earth is at the center of this static, fixed cosmos. God is at the top, you know, around, with the heavens surrounding it. And, of course, there's the great deep, or Sheol, later uh, termed hell by Dante. Thank you to Dante. And there is God overseeing the whole kit and caboodle, you know, the paternal, grandfatherly God, you know, benevol the benevolent creator. And so we've, we did have this idea, at least for the medievals, that this beautiful cosmos was a mirror of the divine, that everything in nature, trees and leaves and the beauty of the stars, would express the divine um, reality. And the human was the one who was in the center of the static fixed cosmos as one who could contemplate the heavens and yet mediating, you might say, heaven and earth. We were, in a sense, to give voice to this whole in relation to God. Even the university, and I would say the medieval university, was, in a sense, place where knowledge of the whole. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, Bonaventure, all, they all studied the arts, humanities, along with mathematics, rhetoric, physics, astronomy. You did the whole nine yards, so to speak. Because the university was, in a sense, the place to know the universe. In a sense, the universe as that which turns as one. And therefore, knowledge was, in a sense, that knowing process that would help turn as one. So knowledge was not an end in itself. It was, in a sense, a way to deepen love. Love that would connect us to this whole, to know it, and to be part of it in a deeper way. Okay, if you, if you got that story so far, then the story takes a slight shift. Now, in the 15th century, uh, we had... We were always observers of the heavens, right? We love to go out, on, and here in Portland, I bet, you know, here near the bluffs, near the river, you go out and see the beautiful stars and, you know, the night watchers. Well, uh, a Polish astronomer by the name of Nicholas Copernicus was starting to night watch and starting to measure the rotation of the planets. And he uh, basically said, hmm, you know... <laughs> This is odd, but it doesn't seem that the Earth is center. It seems that the sun is center. Uh, now, Nicholas was uh, a favored by the Pope at his time, and Rome was very interested in what he had to say, but he was a little bit nervous because what Nicholas discovered was the Earth with the other planets seemed to be moving around the sun 
which meant the earth wasn't static center, the sun was center. Uh, He basically hid his results under his pillow, uh, but others did confirm, you know, that indeed was a heliocentric cosmos and not a geocentric cosmos. Of course, the one who really began to make this famous was Galileo Galilei. Now, Galileo uh, emerges in the 17th century around the same time as the Protestant Reformation. Uh, And here is the problem, because Galileo had a more powerful telescope. He confirmed the findings of Copernicus. Indeed, this Earth is moving around the sun, and he could measure more accurately. Uh, But the, the church had wedded itself to Aristotle, it wedded itself to the Ptolemaic universe, and therefore, it seemed that what Galileo was saying was contrary to scripture. Uh, In a sense, Galileo seemed to be a protest person, something like Luther and Calvin, you know, a Protestant. Um, And, of course, we know that it wound up at the famous trial of Galileo, where uh, Cardinal Bellarmine said, well, you know, the doctrine attributed to Copernicus that the earth moves around the sun and the sun stands at the center of the world without moving from east to west is contrary to Holy Scripture and therefore cannot be defended or held. Um, Well, as the story goes, Galileo was placed under house arrest until about 1984. So it it does depend what you say. Uh, This, however, does begin, in a sense... Not only just a revolution, but up to this time, especially in the static fixed Ptolemaic cosmos, science, in a sense, was a branch of philosophy, and philosophy was the underpinning of theology. These three areas were held together in a single whole. After Galileo, we begin to see a shift. Uh, What Galileo basically said is science is science. It can reveal the world to us as it really is and not just as it appears. Uh, contrary to Plato. So Galileo was about observation. Let's observe. Let's measure. And therefore, he confirmed heliocentrism. But in doing so, what Galileo did is a very subtle shift. He changed three letters from W-H-Y, which was the question of the ancients, why this, purpose, finality, to how, how is this working? and therefore a movement towards efficient causality. This little shift from the why to how really began to introduce a mechanical view of nature. And this slight shift, I'm not even sure he had a conscious decision here that he was actually creating or fathering two independent areas, science and religion. And of course, you know, his famous Uh, maxim is the Bible tells us how to go to heaven. That's not heavens. We only have, in a sense, one heaven that we believe in, but not how the heavens go. So he didn't feel that science contradicted scripture. He felt that scripture is about our relationship with God, and science helps us understand nature. But, of course, with Galileo, we did have the Reformation, which, in a sense, gave priority to the book of scripture over nature. And therefore, we we can begin to see this increasing confidence in scripture and a movement away from nature. The idea that all but humans are excluded from grace, 
created sort of an ambivalent attitude. You know, even though we held to the incarnation, both Catholic and Protestant, we had this idea that, yeah, we're part of this world, but no, really, we're going to the next world. You know, our focus was more on heaven, on this kind of otherworldliness. Um, and, and this kind of, of mentality, furthered by the rise of modern science and the rise of experimental science, really led to this separation. Religion became more inward-looking, more, uh, more authoritative in structure. Science began to take off on its own to make tremendous discoveries. Of course, then we have someone like Descartes, who was a Jesuit-trained mathematician, um, and I think very worried about a world that's changing. You know, how could we hold the whole together? In a sense, Descartes was seeking to retain Catholicity, and his way to do it was this. He was like, voila, I've got the answer. You know, Why, if, if, you know if I think, and, uh, and therefore uh, I am, there must be perfect, you know, perfect thinking, perfect being itself. So Descartes basically strips the natural world of any sacred meaning. It's just stuff, inert matter. And he gives priority to the thinking self, right? Um, you know, the, the, the self-thinking self. Uh, and therefore, by doing that, we left the world behind, in a sense, now, in a sense, cut off from God, cut off from the whole. And we can even look at what science does after Descartes. It starts doing everything from splicing and dicing nature to, uh, to tearing it up. Now, here's, I hope no one's in neuroscience here, because this is a very colorful view of the brain. Here's in a, a little sense. I mean, that's, that's covering a, a large amount of time in a short amount of time. But here's, in a sense, what Ian McGilchrist, the psychiatrist, has diagnosed. He calls it the divided brain and the unmaking of the Western world. And basically what he said is, you know, for the ancients, the right brain, this is the right brain here, the very colorful one that has love and freedom and passion and creativity, that brain is the brain that's in touch with the world, the world of the senses, the world of the emotions. The left brain is sort of the mechanical side, the analytical brain, the logical brain, the strategic brain. Now, basically, you know, uh, we take in information through our senses, and we, in a sense, break that information down to make sense of it. But the whole brain would throw it back, and we would reconnect with the lar larger world. What McGilchrist said is, basically, we cut off the right brain. In a sense, this is what he says. The left brain, being focused on control and analysis and detail, became the most important part of us. And if you think of it, I mean, if you look at our world today, we are very, very left brain world. We're very good at analyzing things. We're very logical. You know, it's, we break things down into bits. Where we lack today is how to connect, how to have a wider vision, how to have an openness of our knowing process to connect us to a wider whole. So the left brain that, that is narrow tends to be the, the brain, the, the fearful brain, like there's not enough resources, so we need to strategize on how we're going to get enough resources. The right brain is like, hey, let's share with everyone, you know, let's have a big party. So... Um, 
We sort of became, and I think in the 18th and 19th centuries, very, very capable left-brain people. And I think Newton's world sort of confirms this in its own way. Newton, of course, the great mathematician, you know, the discoverer of the laws of motion and gravity. Newton was a very religious man, but Newton's God was something of a, a deus God, uh, what I would often call a Florida God, because God sort of, you know, puts it in motion and then retires in Orlando and then um, <laughs> checks in with the kids every so often, you know, how are things going there? But if you look at Newton's God, you know, and Newton's world machine, I don't know if my pointer works here, but, you know, we're all like little blocks, you know, we're all... All, all individuals, but there are laws of nature that hold us together. But we have constructed our modern culture like Newton's world. I mean, if I go to any neighborhood, we each have our little houses, right? And I move into my house, and you move into your house. And if I want to talk to you, I will reach out. And if I don't want to talk to you, I'm not going to bother, you know? And so we, I do my thing, you do your thing, and that's fine. We don't have to interact at all. Um, in religious life, we used to have an old maxim in the old days called, keep the rule and the rule will keep you. And that was basically, you know, like you would go into a religious community, they say, here's the rule book, you know, and you read it and go, okay, you know, got it. And it says, if you are, uh, if you just entered, do not sit in the mother superior seat, you know, and <laughs> you went in one day and you sat down in the wrong seat, you were out of that community in about five minutes. I think of this when I go to church where I live, you know, if I, I go to a classroom, everyone sits in the same place every time. Uh, you know, in church, it's just amazing. You, you would think there were signs like this is your place in this church, you know, <laughs> but people sit exactly there, right? And you walk into church one Sunday and you're a little bit late and you walk up and you go, they're sitting in my seat. You know, they're in my seat. Like, there's no sign that says your seat, but you're, you're thinking, well, should I move them over? Should I, you know, should I just crawl over them or sit on them? You know, so that's Newton's world, right? We, we get, in Newton's world, we get all bent out of shape because we have our little, little square, and that's my square, right? And you're not supposed to be there otherwise. And, you know, here's the thing. Since the old days of Thomas Aquinas into Newton's world, in Thomas's, in Thomas's world, we had a role in the cosmos, just like we did for the ancients. We were the center. We were the voice. By the time we get to Newton's world, we're just clamoring for that little space, right? And when we don't have space, we kind of fall over. Here we are. We sort of lost our way in the whole, lost our place in space. And my, one of my guides is the Jesuit Pierre Teilhard de Jourdain, a British, a British, a French scientist and Jesuit. And at one point he wrote, you know, the artificial separation between humans and cosmos is at the root of our contemporary moral confusion. And I, I want you to take note of the adjective artificial. It's artificial. We have created it by the way we have structured our knowing process and therefore being process. So I do want to take just a brief stint through the new science because I do think the new science is ushering in a new Catholicity. 
This is not to say that the universe is Catholic, but we might, you know, stretch it in that direction. Um, with, a, with a small c, by the way. Three areas of science, uh, very simply. The large area, the Big Bang, the small of quantum physics, and the complex of evolution. Well, you know, Newton's world was really overturned in the early 20th century by a little um, uh, very brilliant guy working in a patent office in Switzerland by the name of Albert Einstein. I think Einstein was a genius because he was so imaginative and creative. And basically, he was unhappy with Newton's ideas on absolute space and absolute time. And therefore, by, in a sense, thinking about light and the photons of light, and uh, uh, Einstein came to a new understanding that time is not fixed and it's not absolute. Time is what you measure with a clock wherever you find yourself. And therefore, what Einstein began to realize is we don't live in a universe that's like Legos, you know, like building blocks. That space-time seems to be part of a very kind of permeable universe. I mean, the universe is more like Gumby or bubblegum. I think of it as bubblegum, actually. It's probably a bazooka universe, you know, where gravity acts to structure space. And... You know, it's really Einstein's uh, theory of relativity that has given birth to our cosmos, the, the world we live in. And it is a very ancient cosmos. Uh, it's about 13.8 billion years old, and we cannot get our heads around that. I mean, we can't even get our heads around a million years. But, you know, if you're feeling old, I always say, think of the cosmos. It's very, very old. <clears throat> And we don't know exactly how it began. You know, uh, that's what science studies, you know, that, that very rather mysterious beginning, uh, quantum fluctuations, the Higgs boson particle, and all that we read about. What we do know, it has taken a long amount of time for things to develop. Uh, about a billion years for planets and millions of years for the stars to emerge. Most of the cosmos is, this universe is dark energy or the energy of expansion and a small percentage dark matter. So we're able to continue expanding uh, and we are, in a sense, being held together at an amazingly fine-tuned rate. More amazingly, this universe may continue on for billions or if not trillions of years or just infinite expansion. Again, that's the realm of science, and I leave it to scientists. Uh, but it does make us wonder, what are we doing here in this very, very short amount of time that we have? As the psalmist says, 70 for most, 80 if you're strong, and 90 with good drugs. And um, <laughs> uh, Again, it is ex an expanding universe. In other words, it began as a hot, dense uh, material that rapidly expanded and started to cool. And, of course, we feel ourselves expanding sometimes. And uh, this is how we know we are children of the universe. Even more amazing, however, is Newton's, uh, uh, in a Newton, Einstein's discovery uh, of the interconvertibility between mass and energy. And what we are beginning to really appreciate more and more is that energy is the stuff of life. 
And this has not really filtered into our everyday thinking. But on, on the micro level of reality, uh, it is all about energy. And of course, you know, scientists in the early part of the 20th century began to do uh, experiments uh, trying to understand is a particle and a wave, are they two separate things or, or what? You know, as we begin to study light. And of course, what they realize is that matter, what we call matter, has this very strange characteristic of being both wave and particle. And the only way we can know what something is, is if we observe it. And in a sense, what we are, began to appreciate from science in the early 20th century is we are not passive spectators here. We are not just existing in this universe, that the act of observation actually brings to reality what is otherwise potentiality. So quantum reality is, in a sense, what describes the world of matter. Matter not so much as stuff, but matter as complex webs of relationships. So that what, what we learn from quantum physics is that cosmic life is intrinsically relational. That the term interconnectivity is the most apt description of our material uh, reality. So nature is not composed of material substances per se, but what we can say, it's more like entangled fields of energy. So that on the, on the micro level of life, we can say the nature of the universe is undivided wholeness. That, in a sense, led Paul Dirac, when he was receiving the Nobel Prize in 1933, they had a little dinner for him the night before, you know. And at that dinner speech, he stood up and he said, you know, this quantum reality is such that if you pick a flower on Earth, you will move the farthest star. That's how interconnected it is. And that kind of reality has yet to really filter into our everyday consciousness. That if I cut down a tree, even a limb, or if I pick a flower, that that action will have cosmic effects. But that is the type of world we live in today. The term quantum entanglement uh, was a phenomenon that Einstein really did not accept at first. His two postdoc students said, Albert, I think really we should think about this, uh, that if we were to take two particles that have interacted and we split them apart and we place one particle here on the podium in Portland and the other on the, on the moon Jupiter, and we were to turn this particle up 180 degrees, the particle on Jupiter would turn down 180 degrees. And Einstein said, I don't believe that, you know. And they said, well, get over it, L, you know, because <laughs> it's really true. Uh, and this was later shown to be true by the uh, physicist John Bell. They call this non-local action at a distance, or spooky action at a distance, that even if we are separated over vast distances, we can affect one another. And I think I would put this on the realm, on the human level of consciousness. Uh, for example, I worked with a person by the name of Pat Reed for many years, 
and we became very good friends. And Pat retired uh, and moved uh, to, to Massachusetts. We were in Washington. And you know, do you ever have that experience? And you haven't, you had a good friend, they move away, and then you haven't seen them for like, you know, a few years. And you're thinking about them one day. Gee, I wonder how Pat is doing. And all of a sudden, the phone rings, right? And you go, oh my gosh, you know, I was just thinking about you. And we used to say, what a coincidence. Now we can say we're quantumly entangled, you know? <laughs> so be careful who your friends are. That's all I'm telling you because <laughs> it's forever. Um, David Bohm, the physicist who is a contemporary of Einstein, uh, conceived of a quantum potential, a whole sort of a, a factor that, in a sense, guides the whole of this quantum reality. And in his book, Implicate Order, he, he had this to say. As human beings and societies, we seem separate, but in our roots, we are part of an indivisible whole and share in the same cosmic process. Muslims, Jews, Christians, Buddhists, atheists, Russians, Chinese, Africans, it's as if, if we were to take the fabric of our lives and turn it inside out, we would not be able, in a sense, to distinguish one from the other because we would be part of the same whole. So we find this fascinating process of life not static, but dynamic. I think the word evolution is the best descriptive word to describe this life that is a process of lawfulness and chance and openness to newness. Before, and in fact, much of our theology is based on a cosmos that is static and fixed. But evolution says no life is open to doing new things. And yet it is the word that still stumbles a lot of people when it comes to religion. Uh, a number of years ago, I had a young woman visit us in Washington, and she said to me, so what are you working on? And I said, well, I'm interested in evolution and Christianity. And she said, oh, evolution is just a theory. Uh, God created, you know, Adam and Eve and placed them here on earth. I said, no, that's just a story that was told at the time. She said, oh, no, no, that's exactly what happened. And I said, well, it's really nice knowing you. So um, <laughs> I haven't seen her since, by the way, so I'm sure she's doing well. Uh, you know, without getting into Darwinian evolution or, or the details of evolution, I think, I think Teilhard you know, uh, allows us to describe evolution in three simple terms. Convergence. Given sufficient amount of time and the right conditions, things will come together, you know. And as they come together, they form new levels of relationships, complexity. And he said, as they come together and form new levels of relationships, consciousness rises. Consciousness as the flow of information across fields. So what, what Teilhard said is evolution is not just background to our story. It's not like, oh, what a nice idea, you know, to talk about evolution. Rather, it is our story. And I think this is the part from the point of religion we have yet to really fully grasp. We are not so much in evolution, we are evolution. Now on the level of self-consciousness. It's as if this whole cosmos now is now us. It is in our, in a sense, in our thinking and our choices. So 
when we talk about evolution, we are really meaning in a, in a universe that is still open to the future, we are saying that we are unfinished. We are not finished products. So I think the language of, oh, we failed, you know, it's all over, we're all dying, you know, it's got to go, okay? Because if we're dying, something else is happening somewhere. We are being created. We're not just, uh, you know, just here it is, what you see is what you get. Uh, rather, we are processes of being created. So life is, in a sense, always moving toward newness. And what we do know is that evolution is an irreversible process. It's not like you become more complex and go, oh, gee, I don't like this. You know, I think I want to go back. Um, life evolves by creative power. And you might say the three prongs of evolution are creativity, novelty, and future. Life loves to be loves more life and loves to do new things, very simply stated. And, you know, here's the thing. I mean, because we've been a little bit slow on the side of religion to catch up with things, uh, with the evolution, our fastest evolver today is technology. And it is evolving us at an almost breathless speed. I mean, I am now old enough to remember when the first cell phone appeared in New Jersey. You know, it was about nine feet long. Uh, but, you know, where I grew up in New Jersey, we had a phone on the wall. I don't know, you younger folks may not remember this, but it had a cord. And you could only walk so far with the phone. And I remember someone saying, you know, they're going to have a phone that you could carry around in your hand. I said, no way. Well, yep, oh, yay way, I had it. Uh, and then I remember people saying, you know, they're going to have computers that you'll be able to hold in the palm of your hand. I said, that is unbelievable, you know. Sure enough, thanks to Google and Mark Zuckerberg and all our Apple Steve Jobs, the power of human creativity and imagination to transcend ourselves is just unbelievable. And therefore, uh, because religiously we're a little bit, really, should we talk about evolution? Google and Googleites say, oh, absolutely. You know, pretty soon, pretty soon the computer will be obsolete. We'll have chips in our heads and brain downloading, etc. But here's the thing. <laughs> we are not evolving at the same speed, okay? So, I just want you to realize that. So it is an open universe, but here we are. We're not at the center of this cosmos. We are, in a sense, the arrow, as Teilhard said. We are, in a sense, the growing tip of this cosmic process. So he describes us, in a sense, as evolution now conscious of itself. We are, in a sense, we're able to reflect on the cosmos. We're able to study it. We're able to know it. But we also have a frontier position. Where are we going in it? What are the choices are we making for it? Teilhard uh, really put the emphasis on consciousness. Evolution is the rise of consciousness. And I think he was onto something here that can be very important for us today and very important for what Pope Francis is saying. First of all, we're beginning to realize more and more that our minds are not just our minds. The mind is not just a human phenomenon like all of a sudden, evolution's going along and, oops, there we are. This human comes along and has a mind. Rather, we're beginning to see mind as part of the whole cosmic process. So that through our minds, we realize more and more being part of this whole that is our home. 
Now, interestingly, Teilhard looked at energy, the core energy of the universe, in two directions. He said there is an energy of consciousness that keeps transcending. In other words, as we know, as we're more mindful, we're moved beyond. We're moved beyond where we are. And yet, there's another dimension to that energy that keeps attracting us. So he spoke about love and consciousness as two vectors or two directions of this core energy. Now, listen, you don't have to be a scientist to figure this out. Love changes us. It changes the way you think. When you fall in love, your consciousness shifts. And basically, that's what he's saying, right? To fall in love, to be attracted to another, causes, you, causes your mind to open up. You see the world and yourself in a different way. And that's what we're saying now on the cosmic level. Teilhard spoke about love as a cosmological force. And this strikes us as almost, you know, funny. It's like love, really? Sounds like a Woody Allen movie, right? But what we're saying is love is not just sentiment. Love is not what you've just fallen and out of. It's not just emotion. Love, as the ancients conceived it, was the highest good. The most, it's about desire. It's about attraction. It's about what pulls us when we get up in the morning. What is it that we're drawn to? And what Teilhard is saying, that force is throughout the whole cosmos. So he speaks about even uh, particles, molecular forces, um, um, among the most indivisible particles, love energy. And I would challenge any scientist to start writing about love energy. But that's the kind of thinking that, in a sense, can help bridge us into a new future. Uh, and Teilhard's famous line is, the physical structure of the universe is love. The physical structure of the universe. So not just quarks and hadrons and leptons, but these as in their deepest composition as being the, the force of love. And this led him then to ask, well, if this is true, if this universe is not just being, not just matter, not just something static and fixed, but something dynamic and constantly being drawn to something more, more being in love, then what is God and what is God doing? Of course, in one of his essays, he asked the question, well, who will give evolution its own God? Uh, I read that, and I thought, well, I'll give it a try. And then I invited Father Tom Hosinski to write an article, a chapter on this. So um, who will give evolution its own God? We could, we could spend just the rest of the time asking, well, what is God? You know, and who is God? Teilhard looks at the physical process of life. And you have, I mean, we would have to be amazed that after 13.8 billion years, we are sitting here this evening trying to comprehend a lot of slides uh, in a short amount of time, but what we're about, where we're coming from, where we're going, why our earth is in a crisis. So there's something that keeps holding the whole together. And Teilhard called that absolute wholeness at the heart of life, Omega. From the scriptures, I am the Alpha and the Omega. In other words, the whole that we seek is already within us. And he goes on to say that the universe is resting 
on the future, this omega that is up ahead as its sole support. But this omega, then, is God. God, then, not just so much as the benevolent overseer, but God as that power of the future. The God who is already there is the God who is here. And he says theology has thought about God too much from the past. God is too old, too static. Um, He says we must think about God now from the future, a God who does new things. Or as Meister Eckhart once said, you know, God is the newest thing there is, the youngest thing. And when we are united to God, we become new again. We become new again which is sort of a a kind of a litmus test, is how united to God are we? So wholeness, from Teilhard's perspective, wholeness is God already at the heart of an expanding universe. And this union of divinity and humanity is not just due to sin, Teilhard said. Rather, he sees that this whole Big Bang universe from the beginning is what the Christ is about. Now, he borrows the notion of the primacy of Christ, that whether or not Adam and Eve ever existed, whether or not original sin ever happened, Christ would have come because God is love, and from all eternity, God willed to love another to grace and glory. And so this was a Franciscan, I might add, who came up with this, um, who really gave the imprimatur to this idea. And I think if Teilhard had discovered SCOTUS earlier, he would have been Teilhard OFM. (laughs) And we would have published his results. He was, the Jesuits were not very nice. Anyway, we are saying that the word became evolution. That's what we're saying. That God is not just sort of randomly out there or, you know, gee, gosh, they really messed it up down there. I'll have to send the sun, you know, to fix it up. Rather, God's been intimately involved in this whole process from the beginning. So that Teilhard sees these processes of creation and incarnation and redemption, you know, these big, big areas that we talk about. And I really think we came up with them so we can get a theology degree because you need a semester for each one, you know. But <laughs> what Teilhard said is, no, 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 no. There are really three aspects of the one act of God's self-giving love. Love poured out, God creating. Love uniting, God incarnating. And that in that union, drawing together what is not yet united, redeeming. And so God's love at the heart of this cosmos, he says, is in a sense this birthing of Christ, or what he calls Christogenesis. Which means when we come to Jesus, you know, we don't come to this... Uh, kind of blip on the screen, or wow, what, what is this about Jesus, you know, or all about sin, that Jesus, in a sense, recapitulates what the whole universe is about, consciousness, relatedness, wholeness. I mean, we see in Jesus something radically new, so new that, you know, everyone around him was like, isn't he the guy from, you know, from, Beth, from Nazareth, you know, um, but we see in Jesus a new consciousness, And more and more, I have to say, I'm not sure Jesus really had anything in mind of a new church. I think what he had in in mind was a new humanity, a new community centered in God. 
He had a consciousness of God at the heart in our midst. And we, you know, we know that because he says, you know, this kingdom of God, this reign of God is not out there someplace. It's here. It's now. So Jesus was Jewish, okay? A Jew who had a sense of God's immediacy and therefore to trust this God in our midst, to be liberated in faith, to, to take up our, in our freedom to do new things. And so I think we see in Jesus something like a second big bang. He sort of ushers in a whole new you know, way of being, a new direction. And I think a lot of the Gospels is about newness and creativity, not so much about, you know, is this right or wrong? I like to ask people, you know, was Jesus Catholic? Um, because, now this is not a test question by any means, but some people have said, oh yes, Jesus was Catholic, but his mother was Jewish. So he comes from a... <laughs> but again, I think if we take Catholic, Catholicos, as a homemaker, and if we don't like the word Christian, we could say Jesus was a homemaker. That's what Jesus did. He made holes where there were partials. He made holes out of those who were unhealthy, those who were, in a sense, forgotten because of their sin or, or marginalized, those who were, you know, in need of mercy, those in need of compassion and reconciliation. And that's the kind of healing, I think, we find in Jesus, that salvation, to be made whole and therefore to help make whole the world around us. And that's why this death of Jesus is not about, it wasn't about Jesus. I mean, we know from the Gospel of John, Jesus is like, no, 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 don't make me the king. It's not about me. I must go that the Spirit may come. It's the Spirit that is that breath of life. It's the Spirit that does new, new things. So Jesus is released into wholeness so that death, is not something to avoid. It's not something that's contrary to life. Death is, in a sense, that entrance into the fullness of life. And, you know, Christians are meant to be people of the resurrection. But, you know, I don't know about you here in Portland. You look like a very enlightened group. But when I go to Easter services, you know, we all love Christmas. I mean, everyone loves Christmas. You don't have to be Christian. You know, you can be whatever. But we love gifts. We love babies. You come to uh, Easter and it's like, the Lord is risen. Alleluia. <laughs> and it's like, well, isn't that a novel idea? The Lord is risen. How about that? You know, it doesn't move. I mean, we're like, oh, so, yeah, uh, amen. Alleluia. And uh, what are you having for dinner tonight? You know, we are people who believe that life is at the heart of life, that death cannot be vanquished, that we cannot be annihilated, that we cannot destroy ourselves because we believe that God is at the heart and that we are living on a new level of consciousness. That's what it means to be a Christian, that it's not same old stuff that we believe there's a new basis to understand our destiny. We have a new sense of what it means to be human and therefore to belong to this whole. So I do think with Jesus, we see kind of a step. Christianity is basically a religion of evolution. It's about becoming something more in relation to God, something more whole and more unitive in love. But even Jesus said, hey, 
don't just imitate me. You are to breathe in the spirit. You are to live in that spirit of new life. And he says, you know, the one who believes in me will do greater works than these because I go to the Father. Greater works than Jesus. You know, so we are invited in this moment to not just be, know ourselves as creatures, but to be a co-creator. A co-creator participating with God in the transformation of this universe. So what we are saying is that evolution has not ended with us. We are part of this process, and I think especially from a Christian perspective, but any perspective, it demands our commitment to it. The famous lines from the Gospels, new wine must be put into new wineskins. No, no, we insist we'll try putting that new wine into old skins. We're pretty sure it can work. You know, it doesn't work, right? The skins are breaking. But it does make me wonder if this is about consciousness and love, this is about breathing in the spirit, why is our fastest evolver technology? Now, I love technology, don't get me wrong. Um, I'm a little bit geeky. But when we come to movies like Her, where in failed relationships, we will attach ourselves to our devices, to our technologies. You know, it makes me really get wondrous about are we in a kind of a new form of cyberplatonism that we are not attentive to this world and to this world being our lives and our lives being part of it are we looking for something that's out there you know that's there and not here and by doing that we don't even recognize the person who we're next to as one writer says we are in the process of making one another disappear by living our lives apart from others in the company of machines, that we're more happy texting one another rather than having a face-to-face conversation. So how can we possibly have any respect for the earth if we have no respect for the human face that calls our attention? So, you know, we are saying where our mind is, there our treasure lies. Where are our minds at any given moment? And usually in our day and age, they're all over the place. And that's why Teilhard says to us, education, thinking, is the most crucial path to evolution. He says to think is to unify, to make holes where there are scattered fragments. Not just simply to tell what things are, but to form a unity that it would otherwise be without. We think so as to unify, which means I think we need to rethink what it means to be in education today, Uh, and especially at a Catholic university. What are we making holes in the way we educate? I think oftentimes we're in an age of hyper-specialization. You know, you don't just become a science major these days. You're not even a biochem major. You are located in some obscure cycle with, you know, the para, uh, you know, alpha carbon matrix of this cycle so that when you're finished, your papers will be read by two people, <laughs> but you will get a job if they are important, two important people. Um, we have brain fatigue. We're exhausted. We are men- you're probably exhausted now, actually, of just following these centuries, but <laughs> we're tired. Our brains are tired. We have information coming at us from all different portals. 
our, our cell addiction, you know, you know, we have, you know, the new um, thing called OCD, obsessive checking disorder, you know. Uh, and we need something like we need to train ourselves. We need d- new disciplines. We need, in a sense, that kind of focusing, or what we call the Buddha brain. In other words, long periods of meditation, long periods of silence. Um, we need, in a sense, to awaken our right brain, that higher level of consciousness, so that we can begin to think so as to unify. And therefore, I might invite us this evening to begin thinking about educating toward what I would call deep Catholicity. And, and this is not only bridging science and religion, but that whatever we're studying, we are, in a sense, seeing that area of study as a way to help make whole our lives and, our, and the world. And therefore, we need to, in a sense, educate in a way that is both contemplative and engaging. We need to slow down, and we need to build soul, right? To build the inner soul. I do think we need something like cyber fast or cyber sabbaths. Can we take one day a week and simply unplug all our devices? And here's a really novel idea. You might go talk to one other person, you know, or you might just take a walk in nature. You have beautiful nature here, and I think you know, Northwestern people are much more nature-oriented than in the East. Um, but here's what St. Fra- uh, Francis, Pope Francis says in Laudato Si. The external deserts of the world are growing because the internal deserts have become so vast. We are losing the sense of the interior life. So it is to realize we are part of a creative whole of unlimited potential. And both science and religion tell us that whereby ourself and our world are constantly being drawn into a new existence together, and that is evolution. As Thomas Berry says, we will go into the future as a single sacred community, or we will all perish in the desert. And I think Pope Francis is sounding this alarm in Laudato Si. It cannot sustain itself. We have an unsustainable way of life, And therefore, we begin to realize that when I am addicted to my technologies, when I segregate myself from everything else, that I am then in sin, cosmic sin, ecological sin, human sin, is living in the exile of unrelatedness. The Jewish writer Eddie Hillison once said, each one of us moves things along in the direction of war every time we fail in love. If we think that picking a flower on earth moves the farthest star, and we know that we live in a deeply entangled universe, then we must be aware that not to have mercy, not to be compassionate, not to be forgiving, not to move in the direction of love, makes us complicit in the wars of Iraq, Afghanistan, wherever war is happening in the world. So, as Bonaventure said, Many centuries ago, you truly exist where you love and not merely where you live. I think Pope Francis is calling us to awaken our lives to a new level of consciousness, a consciousness of interdependence, a consciousness of belonging to a whole. But we will only have that consciousness if we love the whole, because we are, in a sense, the sum of our loves. 
Teilhard said, in the end, love alone can bring us to the threshold of another universe. May we love well, and may we love the whole. Thank you. Okay, so let me just see if I understand your question. Are you saying we're insignificant in the universe? Did I hear that correctly? We're this little dot. Well, you know, let me just say this. A universe born out of love, there's nothing insignificant, for one thing. A second thing I might just point out, I mean, from Genesis, that from a Christian perspective, we believe ourselves to be created in the image of God. So there is something that we have the capacity for, and that is for union with God. So I don't find it, it can seem that we're insignificant, and that's precisely what we're saying here. We are not insignificant. We are significant insofar as the whole universe, in a sense, is resting on us for its future. How we choose, how we think, how we love will make a difference to how this, this process of life, biological life, proceeds. You know, now, you know, I, I think this, I think the whole point of life is that God is rising up in consciousness in and through us. That it's not just about us. You know, it's about, in a sense, the glorification of God who from a Christian perspective, as creator of this universe, seeks to, in a sense, become known as center of the universe. So I would, I would maybe move away from the insignificance of human life, because it can seem, that sounds like very much like some scientists would say, oh, this big grand universe, and here we're just random events, like the Jacques Monod thing, you know, just happens to be we're here, um, just lucky roll of the dice. From a Christian perspective, we say there is no dice, that whether it's a quark or a, grain of, uh, or a grain of sand or a star, everything is loved into being by God, and everything will have its eternal significance in that love in the future. Thinking and... Yes. So, so the difference here, um, and, uh, you know, for the sake of time, I didn't put this in, but we live in an information age, and in a, in a lot of our, our, our stuff today is information. Uh, and, and it comes in the form of the question, tell me what I need to know. And the know is, here's the 10 points you need to know. 
Thinking is a contemplative act. Thinking is, in a sense, taking that, that information in and pondering it, um, ruminating over it. We do this all the time in a certain way. But what Teilhard said is, as we begin to ruminate, ponder it, reflect on it, we are to notice, in a sense, our insight shifting. Uh, and you say, oh, now I see. And the shift of that insight then moves us to act in a different way. Uh, you know, in a sense, rather than acting perhaps selfishly, we might act in a way that's more unitive. Um, and therefore, knowledge that enlightens, uh, in a sense, should help us unify in, by the way we act toward another. So it's not just information. It's, it's this kind of, and what Teilhard says, we become artisans of the world. We begin to shape the world by our actions. And I find us today sort of, again, so inundated by information, we're sort of reflexively uh, just reacting. We react instead of respond to the encounter of ideas or, or things. Yeah, you know, I think one thing I would say uh, in response to your, to your uh, comments is I do think science is coming up to a brick wall. In other words, I don't think the scientific, scientific method is really holding that much anymore, only because life is getting, on, on the micro level, is getting weirder and weirder, you know, and it's, it's not graspable anymore. It's not easily controllable, right? It's becoming more and more elusive. Yes, that's very good. Right, right. There are different ways of knowing, but we, we put a lot of emphasis on the rational, analytic side of knowing. And I think today's science is calling for the more intuitive way of knowing, um, to at, at least humbly admit that there's a level of mystery even in science, you know, and we can admit that. Um, and so I do think, I think science today is calling for a new level, an admittance of humility, and therefore an openness to other ways of knowing. And I don't, maybe perhaps science needs, you know, if we can just get beyond sometimes, uh, you know, this kind of, it's a type of hubris sometimes on top of scientists. You know, it's hard, it's rational, it's, you know, analytical, and, um, you know, and say, hey, I need you. So the day I hear a scientist say to a theologian, I need you, I know we'll have arrived. Yeah. Just a couple of things before you go, and we'll offer uh, our final things. I think that uh, we have given us lots of ways to think about Jesus' final prayer to his disciples, um, may they all be one. And 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Things over 